Hey, it's Kristen. You're listening to Rational in Portland. Thank you so much for listening to Rational in Portland. I'm your host, Kristen. I have Bob Weinstein in the studio. He is running for City Council, Portland City Council District 4. Bob, welcome. Thank you so much for coming in. Well, thank you for having me, Kristen. I really appreciate it. You know, when we were off air, we were talking about how um, you and I had some brief contact a while ago when I had Sonia Montalbano on this show talking about why people should vote no on charter reform. And unfortunately, the majority of Portlanders, as we learned later, voted yes, and here we are. And I, I just really appreciate you running. Bob, before we start talking about your candidacy, and again, again, thank you for running, can you talk to us a little bit about charter reform and why you were part of that Partnership for Common Sense government group that people like Sonia and Vadim Mazirsky and... Terry Porter from the Trailblazers were part of? Uh, sure. Um, I joined the Partnership for Common Sense Government because I was very concerned about the proposed charter, which from our perspective, my perspective, was preordained before the Charter Commission began its public process. There were documents and studies that showed that what they recommended to the voters were already in existence. Um, so we were concerned about the multi-member districts, and we were concerned about the form of voting. But before I talk about that for a second, I want to say that as a group, we supported charter reform. We supported having a professional city administrator instead of having whoever happens to be elected to the city council actually be in charge of running the bureaus and departments, even if they had absolutely no qualifications to do so. Uh, the second uh, thing that we recommended was having districts. We favored single-member districts, and I'll talk about that in a little bit when we talk about voting. Um, and then we also favored a mayoral veto. Every city virtually of the same size of Portland has the mayor uh, with the power to veto uh, an action by the city council. It's a check and balance, and it's recognized throughout the United States as a check and balance. There's also an opportunity for an override if a supermajority of the legislative body, the council, wants to overturn the veto. And that's very similar to what happens with Congress, where uh, Congress has the ability to override a veto by the president. It's uh, equivalent to what we have in the state of Oregon, where the legislature can override a veto by the governor. So the commission did not want to have that, because from 
what they said publicly, it concentrated too much power in the mayor, when in reality, their goal, especially given that three charter commission members are running for city council, was to concentrate power in the city council and not have a typical check and balance. Um, as I said, we also favored single-member districts, so there would be smaller districts, and people would know who their representative was. Right now, there will be three members, and who do you go to if you have a problem? Do you go to all three? Do you go to one or the other? Um, and the districts are huge. They're the size of essentially Eugene or Salem. So we have four huge districts. But then we get to the voting, and we were very opposed to the method of voting that the Charter Commission recommended. And again, they had predetermined the method before they even started their process. Um, they claimed to be using ranked choice, and they talked about cities like New York and San Francisco and other cities in the United States that use ranked choice. Unfortunately, that was a false comparison because those cities use what is called instant runoff rank choice. What that means is a candidate has to get 50% plus one to win, have a majority of the voters. And if a candidate doesn't, after the first tallying, they eliminate the bottom candidate, the least favorite, and that candidate's uh, second votes, if you will, uh, are distributed to other candidates until somebody gets 50% plus one. What the Charter Commission did, and it's only used in one of 19,500 jurisdictions in the United States, Cambridge, Massachusetts, is what's called the single transferable vote method of rank choice. And what that means in a three-member district is a couple things. You only need 25% plus one to win. Number two, if the three... Uh, candidates, the three top candidates, or um, however many top candidates, let's say somebody's very popular and he or she gets 60% and the next candidate gets 20, the next one 15, etc. They literally take all but 35% Excuse me, I'm going to have to back up on that. They will take 35% minus one vote away from the top vote getter. In other words, the one who has broad support and has 60% will, at the end of this method of voting, be reduced to 25% plus one. So they will take thousands of votes away from people's choices. And that's something that we felt was very anti-democratic and very uh, unusual. Uh, the justification of the Charter Commission was it's used in places like Australia and Malta. Well, or, <laughs> yeah, the, or Sonia talked about Malta when she came on the show <laughs> or some places in the UK. And as I said, during the time of the debate on the charter, well, you know, we had a revolution in 1775 to because we we're not going to be part of the UK anymore. Um, so those are the concerns. 
Um, Bob, let me ask you a, a question here because, you know, everybody's trying to understand how this is go- exactly going to work. And Vadim Mazirsky came on, not he's been on the show a couple times, came on not too long ago before he announced his Multnomah County Commissioner candidacy. And thank you to him for running for that. But he tried to explain this single transferable vote. And I appreciate you doing that, too, because I think we're all sort of uh, confused about how it works. No surprise there. Even Willamette Week had difficulty explaining to it, and I'll link to that in the show notes. It's my understanding that there's even some difficulty coming up with the software to figure out how to do this. Um, the, do you know anything about that? I do, actually. But I, 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 I want to finish yeah, please, one, one thing. So they will distribute, they will take away votes from people in the first round or subsequent rounds who have over 25% plus one and literally give, if I were running and I was the 60% people, they will give my votes to other candidates. We think that's wrong. When that's all done and they don't yet have three winners in a district, then they will do or deploy regular rank choice. They start eliminating candidates at the bottom. But first they take away what the Charter Commission in its wisdom declared were surplus votes that a candidate gets. So we think that's wrong and, and, and not appropriate. And that Surplus it w- votes. It just sounds like disenfranchisement to me. Yeah, and um, just moving on a little bit, as you stated, uh, they could not explain to Willamette Week how their voting worked. Yeah, the own charter commissioners that came up with this Right, the, they, they couldn't explain it. They had three uh, different explanations, apparently, when they met with the editorial board. One of the charter commissioners, who's running for city council, famously said, voters don't have to know about how the voting system works. It's like an engine in an automobile. You just know it works. Um, I think voters. Oh my God. Des- I think voters deserve to know how it works and how and if their votes will be tallied, especially these days when there's questions about elections. Um, getting to the software issue, at least at the time of the vote, the county which does the elections for the city, their software vendor did not have a certified program to count single transferable votes. I am not aware of any updates. I know they were working with the vendor on the issue, but to date, uh, there's been no statement that the software is approved and ready to go. It may very well be, or may very well not be. But again, during the charter debate, the charter commission misled people by saying their vendor had similar software to be used in Colorado. Well, make a long story short, um, I looked on the Colorado Legislative Research Agency website. They had a a white paper in uh, December of 2021 talking about that issue. Um, They were talking about rank choice, regular or instant runoff rank choice. They talked about it being implemented in certain counties. 
I called the counties directly that were to be involved in that. They all used Dominion software. In fact, they had not even heard of Multnomah County's vendor, even though our charter commission was saying our vendor software was to be deployed in a similar type of election. So there were those kinds of... When were these calls made? Was this relatively recent? No, it was before the election. Before November 2022. Um, Do you have any information about whether we've made progress on this? I I, I don't. I I, I don't either. And that's what concerns me. There's no transparency around this. Who's building it? What are they building? What does it look like? What do they think this single transferable vote means? What do they think? I don't know. How are they going to decide? What, they're going to bring the charter commissioners in to help them design it? (laughs) Right. I mean, they probably will. (laughs) The other thing that... Uh, has changed since the Charter Commission misled the public is that in their own document, the um, final report of the Charter Commission to the City Council and to the public, they said voters would be able to rank as many candidates as they wanted. Um, And what's funny about that, in their sample ballots at the time to the public, they had these cartoons that showed four or five candidates and four or five rankings. Um, So small ballot. We got a hold of the sample ballot in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and we publicized it. And it was huge because they had 19 candidates and 19 rankings, plus room for write-in. Well, if you multiply 19 times 19, it's a large number of ovals on a ballot. So, again, we said that they were misleading uh, people in terms of even the ballot design. Well, lo and behold, a few months ago, um, the county voting folks were at the city council, and they were recommending that voters could vote on no more than eight. At the end of the discussion the city council decided that we could rank as many as six candidates. So let's say in District 12 we have 13 candidates now. Instead of being able to rank them all, if someone wanted, from 1 to 13, uh, people will have to rank six if they wish, or one, or two. Um, so I think it's going to be very confusing. Um what, what is the strategy here? But well, one, one last question about this, how, how all this works, or at least how you, you think it might work, given your knowledge of it as part of the Partnership for Common Sense Government. One thing I did hear is, yeah, there's this 25%, 25% floating around. But because of single transferable vote and all the trickling down and the what I would call disenfranchisement with this surplus vote reallocation, is it true, Bob, that you can theoretically become a city councilor with less than 25% of the vote? I think I have seen that the third candidate could get elected. I can't explain the math to you, but at least in theory... That's what I've been told. In theory, you need 25% plus one to win, and in that case, that equals... 78%, so a fourth person can't get 25%. Right. I'm not sure of the math, but one thing that people don't know, and the Charter Commission never really told us, the public, was even though you have three 
people who will be elected in your district, at most you'll have a vote counted for one of them. You do not have one vote counted for each of three seats. You will have only one vote counted at most. I, I have not heard this before. Yeah, so at most. Tell us what our strategy should be when we're voting. Because we're going to have to study for this, as my best friend says, like the MCATs or the LSATs. I mean, this is just going to be, we're really going to have to figure out how this works so we can do this correctly. And to the extent you know, Bob, what is your advice here about who to rank, if any, well, and how to do this? Well, my advice, of course, if you're a District 4 voter, is to rank me number one or, or two. But more seriously, I think voters need to study who is running and if voters feel there's one good candidate in their district, they should rank that person. If they think there's two or but three. But do they rank only that person? Or well, do they, they could. Or they could. If, let's say they think there's three or four or five or six. What if I think there's one good one? Then I, I, my advice at this time would be to rank that person only. That's what I have heard. So do yeah. what, and I, I think Vadim said this, but I have heard from, I haven't heard anything different so far, which is, Unless you're in love with that person, do not rank them. Don't. Just rank your number one. If you if you love three or four, sure, rank right. them all. Right. But un unless you've got to have a real commitment to whoever mm -hmm. these people are, don't just start ranking them all one by one. Right. Don't write them down. Right. Um, and I agree with that. You don't want to rank, give a vote to anybody who right. you don't want to be in office. And but so if everybody you needs to hear that clearly. What you're well, saying is, if if you just, you can't just go at that. And I think that's what some of these people are counting on that are running for city council. I think they know that if it was just majority wins, they're not going to get on city council. So part of this is, hey, let's, you know, jerry-rig this so that, we have a, some sort of a chance and the way that they, that people who are not elected the, by the majority really, in my opinion, get on is by you just sort of ranking everybody and right. putting the ones that you think are terrible at the end. But what, as you're saying, Bob, what people don't understand is these votes are going to bounce around. So just don't put them on there unless you love these people and you want to see every single one of those on city council. If you don't want to see all the people that you're ranking on city council, stop it. Stop, stop when you're done with the one or two or however many. Right. And, you know, fortunately, I think in District 4, we'll have several people who are running who have good common sense. And, you know, people will have that choice. But the other thing that's important, if none of your six candidates win, if you rank six, your vote is never tallied. Right. It's, it's called exhausted ballot. And in uh, some communities that have tried this, uh, they've had as many as, uh, I think, 20% exhausted vote ballots. And that's the problem that's when you have, in our case, so far 13 candidates running. If you could rank 13, Ultimately, one of your ballots would count for a winner, potentially. Yeah, but you don't want to rank. Or, or it would be—I shouldn't say counted for a winner. It would be counted uh, it, when you're ranking six out of currently thirteen. There's a greater chance that none of your candidates right. will prevail. If you rank one, same thing. Um, but this so, should—I just want to be clear. This should not 
persuade anyone right. to rank some wackadoo on their ballot. Don't do it. Right. Don't vote for anybody who you think is uh, who you don't want to see. You never want to see on the city council. Or, yeah. or you, or or who you're just lukewarm on. I mean, I just, I think you've, you, people have got to think really long and hard about all these people. And I am really nervous about the lack of civic education in general in this city, and that the the urgency around civic education just got ratcheted up to some dis- extreme degree with this charter reform. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're just really going to have to study these people. So, Bob, sorry, go ahead. Anything else you want to say? Yeah, about that? before we move on from yeah, the charter, please. I also want to touch on the fact that the Charter Commission deliberately gave us a single package up and down, not the key elements. Hey, voters, do you want a city administrator? Hey, voters, do you want well, that was on these purpose. districts? Hey, voters, do you want to have the single transferable vote or because the, wasn't there the, a the poll other, on right. this and there were some things that were more popular than others and right. they knew their cockamamie plan in my opinion would not go through if they separated it out and so instead they just did it as one big chunk and i think most people did not want it as one big chunk is my understanding right in fact you know the charter commission talked about polls they had that favored their narrative but they suppressed uh, a poll that was done by North Star that I believe the Charter Commission uh, staff director knew because she made a report to the city council and admitted the fact that 72%, I believe, of those polled, and it was by Lake Research, a nationally very reputable polling firm, 72% of the voters wanted to have uh, separate votes on key issues, not a package. And that fact, that response was suppressed. It was not shared with the city council. It was certainly not shared with the public. Uh, so the, uh, the other thing is they put their final recommendation out for public comment. And they got quite a few, hundreds of public comments back. I analyzed the public comments. Not only did people overwhelmingly want to have votes on separate key issues, they also overwhelmingly wanted the mayor to have a veto. Overwhelmingly, like 70, 80, 90% on both those items. So the public comment was completely ignored by the Charter Commission. when I asked one of the Charter Commission members, why aren't you responding to this overwhelming response to what you solicited yourselves, she said, well, we had other public comment before. So it was hard for me to understand as a former public official with years of experience why you would send something out for public comment on a very important issue to the city of Portland and the people who live here when you know you're going to ignore whatever the public might say. It's, it's very disingenuous, in my opinion. Bob, let's, there are a couple more things I want to talk about in regard to charter that I just reminded myself about by looking at my notes. One is you said the Partnership for Common Sense Government, which is uh, what you were part of to, to convince people to to, to take a look at this and really understand what they were voting for, that you all favored single member districts. Why is that? 
for a couple of reasons. The districts would be smaller. For example, we would have three districts and uh, what is now one district. We have three representatives, so the population would say we'd have three districts of equal population in what's now District 4. And then the method of voting would be either what we are all used to um, or it could be uh, you know, regular ranked choice, instant runoff ranked choice. And I do want to mention that the Charter Commission recommended the instant runoff, the 50% plus one, for the mayor and auditor. The county charter commission recommended and the voters approved as well. Regular or instant runoff ranked choice for county commissioners, 50% plus one. Only for city council members in the city of Portland will there be this confusing, rarely used anywhere in the world, but certainly rarely used in the United States form of voting. You know, we're not Malta. The last time I looked at a map, <laughs> you sound like Sonia when <laughs> Sonia Montalbano when she came on to talk about this. She was great. One one other issue that I just think it's important to point out is that you know, Bob, you're in District Four, and I think that's my district. And what's irritating to me is I'm an East Sider, and I have been gerrymandered in with the West Siders. And in my opinion. I think that was on purpose. I think that was to take, uh, you know, Renee Gonzalez's base was West Side, um, the, the East Side that I'm part of, and East of 205. Now, they couldn't do anything about East of 205. That was a little too big of a district. But they threw the West Hills in with the East Siders. And I can tell you, just I'm on the uh, Neighborhood Association board I, it, that was infuriating to people who live on the east side because our problems are very, very different. They really, I mean, you don't have to. If, you, if you've lived in Portland for six months, you know the east side is wildly different mm-hmm. than the West Hills. Right. Yeah, um, I will say because of population and the need to have roughly the same number of people in each of the four districts and the fact that west of the river does not have enough in and of itself – they had to take some people from east of the river. But again, that the, goes to your the, point, which is the, it should have been smaller. One of the Right, exactly. One of the proposals was to take, I guess, the central east side, in other words, the part directly across from downtown, which perhaps has more in common with the west side than what I call southern southeast. That you was know, never going to happen. That yeah. was never going to happen because, in my opinion, the people that are very inner southeast – are aligned with a lot of these charter commissioners that came up with this whole cockamamie scheme. So there was right. no way right. they were going to bring in Renee Gonzalez voters and to right. taint their pool. They were, they're going to have their people on there. That's just my opinion. Yeah. Well, you know, they, I, I don't agree. I think that was by design, but that's, and, me. And, and, that's and my I, opinion. I, I don't argue with that. I think that uh, there was a conscious decision to make, uh, a district that, as you said, looks more gerrymandered than it might have been if they had taken something uh, north of your neighborhoods. Yeah, this is Republican-style uh, districting, in my opinion. The the other thing that's interesting to me, Bob, is, and that's frankly upsetting as a taxpayer, is I am all for trying to even out money in politics. I don't. I don't think 
tons of money belongs in politics. I think the, I love that story about the trucker with the iPhone who got in somewhere. I think it was Congress with a hundred bucks and an iPhone. I mean, I love stories like that. I, but what's irritating to me about Portland is I just think like everything else, we swing way too far. And in Portland, people may not know this, but if you've got, what is it, Bob, 20 bucks or under, that donation is matched with city funds, so that's taxpayer money, by nine times, if you have enough to qualify. Right. So it's called the Small Donors Election Program. I'm enrolled in it virtually. Everybody a, is. Every candidate And why is. wouldn't you be? Right. Nine uh, times? Right. I mean, so, you can turn five bucks into 45 bucks. Right. So the city uh, will match, if it were fully funded, uh an individual Portland residents donation of the first 20. So if somebody donates 20, the candidate gets 180 from the city. If the kid, if if somebody donated a hundred dollars, same amount from the city. But one of the issues is, and we can talk about costs in a little while. Oh yeah. Well, they underestimated the cost. uh, We, you and I saw this coming. Right. Yeah. One of the issues for, that, the, that was a, for the partnership of, in my opinion, a lie. for common sense government was the Charter Commission was vastly underestimating the cost. So let's talk about this as an example. It does not take an Albert Einstein to do a complicated complication or calculation to realize yeah. that if you have an election for a mayor and one or two council members and the, the match is going to be X, if you have an election as we are in November of 2024 for 14 elected officials, the mayor, auditor, and 12 council members, and a whole host of candidates, it's going to be way more costly. So that was, I I don't know who was asleep at the wheel, but certainly the Charter Commission could have and should have said, we estimate elections will cost this much Bob, more, especially Bob. in 2024. In my opinion, no one, they weren't asleep at the wheel. They were wide <laughs> awake. Right. You know, was asleep. Um, people like me until I woke up and realized what was going on here with this commission. And that was when Vadim uh, Mazirsky and Alyssa Pishka left. And, and that was when I finally looked into it. And I was like, oh my God, you know, Vadim is saying, in his opinion, this thing was preordained and it's, it's out of control. They've already decided how this is going to go. And I started looking into it and saw, I, I just saw right away, of course they're going to est- underestimate how much this thing costs. The last thing, in my opinion, that they would want to do is accurately calculate how much that, that sticker shock on that, even Portlanders who love taxes, even they would raise an eyebrow. Right. So anyway, just talk about that one item. Yes. Uh, the small donors program is somewhere around five or six million or maybe more short. So of fully matching. Of course it according is. According to the law. So at a recent meeting, the Portland Election Commission reduced the match. So right now. They have to. The, yeah. the mayors at most will get $100,000 match instead of 750000 City council members have been reduced by 60%. So it's a much smaller match until such time as the council, four of whom took advantage of the program themselves to get name recognition. Right. Everybody but the mayor who's on the council has got substantial city match. 
but to date they haven't voted to fully fund that because they're too busy hiring new bureaucrats in the city hall, and we'll talk about that in a bit. So, it, yeah. Oh, my God. The, the, uh, the other thing that I learned, uh, and this was at a neighborhood board meeting, was that, is this true, Bob, that certain districts that the Charter Commission has decided are disenfranchised or maybe don't, for whatever calculation the Charter Commission has made, and I have not checked their math, I have not seen their data, those people will be able to, I think they vote less often than the rest of us. Um, Can you explain I, I, this? Yes, the cycles I, I, are different. I, I know what you're saying. It, even though the four. variation, as far as I know, isn't that significant, the Charter Commission, oh, in its wisdom, decided that districts that whose voters vote more frequently will vote for city council members in non-presidential years. And the two districts whose voters maybe vote less than the other two. And again, I don't think it's by much, if, if that's the case. I, my understanding is We'll vote in presidential years. So currently, yeah. in 2024, on the ballot, two districts, not District 4, will have right. four-year candidates. Right. We will have candidates for only two years. And then in two years, during the governor election, if you will will be voting for four years. So everybody will have four-year terms. Initially, two districts will have two-year terms. The other problem... What and, the and I'm hell glad is that you, the rationale behind that I'm, if I'm, they're eventually going to four anyway? Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up because this is one of the other many flaws in the charter. Uh, and that is when a district is up for election, all members... All three will be up at the same time, not one, not two. So districts will have a great possibility of having three new ones, having nobody with any institutional knowledge or any experience in terms of being a council member in the city of Portland. Whereas, again, if they had had single-member districts, they could have figured out a system where it's one or two every couple of years, not all three of them every four years. So, so it's, um, you know, just another uh, one of the many flaws that uh, I see in the charter. The other thing is, that's interesting, is there's a significant pay raise here, is there not, for city councilors? <laughs> yeah, we could talk about that because you just are describing another flaw in the city charter. The... At some point, uh, the council was advised that they couldn't address their own salaries because it was a conflict of interest. Now, they could have done what some other councils do. If they change the salary, it's not effective until the next election. So anyway, the, the salary was set and has been for a number of years at dollars $127,000. And they get public benefits and all those, yes. like PERS and yep. whatever. Yep. Yeah. So uh, the Charter Commission decided they would have an independent salary commission that was to consist of five experienced HR people. So these five ultimately 
initially decided that council members should be paid 140 something and they dispense with market data you know they may have looked at what are council members in peer cities get then they decided that council members in portland should be paid on what's called an anti-oppressive model and, is, and that, I can't, is that seriously what they I, I can't describe what they meant by that because there's very little literature on, on that subject they also decided that city council members as part of that should have what they called a thriving salary they define the thriving salary as the amount of money a single person wait, wait, wait. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait let me finish it this they is good a thriving, a thriving salary okay, thank you keep going uh, yeah this this gets good so uh, they described it defined it as the amount of money a single person with one child needs t- so that and I may have the number slightly wrong, but you'll get the idea. 50% of the salary goes to basic things like housing and food and utilities and medical expenses. And then either 30 is used for vacations and entertainment. Oh, my God. And 20 in savings or the other way around, 20 for entertainment and 30 for whatever. So anyway, I went to the salary commission meeting and... You know, I didn't speak to their model, but I did say that if you adopt a thriving salary model for city council members, I guarantee you, based on my years of experience doing labor negotiations and and compensation plans, that every union in Portland and every non-represented group in the city of Portland government would rightly say, what about us? Why should council members be the only ones to have a thriving salary so to make a long story short when they were done they set the salary at i believe 133,000 despite council members having less responsibilities than they do today they will not be actively managing uh any bureaus, bureaus because they'll be a professional manager who will do that with the mayor um, but they also are giving a 5% add-on to those who are fluent in a certain number of languages. And, and I can't tell you what all the languages are. They include Spanish and um, other languages that are on a city list that they use for employees whose jobs, from what I understand, cause them to interact with people who don't speak English. Um, so there's a, so the point is some council members might get paid more than others. My seven years of French will not qualify. For, whoa, 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 for whoa, whoa. The Let's back up for a minute. Is that the only what are what exactly are the qualifications for getting paid more? Uh, you have to be, and I may be using the wrong word, but fluent, conversant in a language that is on a list of languages maintained by the city of Portland because uh, a significant enough number of people in the city have those languages as their first language. And and I I can get that for um, city employees who have to engage... Language pay differential. Language pay differential for city council members. Yeah, correct. Uh, Rest assured, I don't qualify. Um, 
so again, I want to get back to the flaw because the salary commission has no check and balance. They literally could have recommend not recommended set city council salaries at half a million dollars or a million dollars. And there's nothing that the council could have done. So from my perspective, when and if there's amendments to the charter, as I'm sure there will be in the future at some appropriate time, they need to do what uh, other jurisdictions have done with salary commissions. In this case, it would mean if the salary commission still exists and if it recommends a raise, that the city council has the right to reject the raise. Not increase it, not set their own salary, but they can say, no, we don't think you should pay city council members another 20% or 50% or whatever scheme a future salary commission might come up with. I mean, Bob, this is what, what's so interesting is there are so many, this is like an onion. There are so many layers to this. I, I don't even think journalism can keep up with I mean, I know it can. Well, let's talk about some more layers because it's hard uh, and, and we need to focus uh, and, and, and people in Portland need to focus and I'm doing my they best. Do. I'm doing my best to bring these issues to light. One of the things the Partnership for Common Sense Government said that is becoming so evident to anybody who's paying attention is that this new form of government would be costly. Uh, The Charter Commission had a range of costs. For example, operating costs, their range was 0.9 to 5 point something million per year of increased costs. You know, I used to be a school superintendent. I was a city council member for six years, a mayor for 12 years. If a staff member came to us with a range, a budget estimate of 0.9 to 5 point something million, uh, we would get another estimate from a more competent person. Yeah, that's a pretty big delta. (laughs) Yeah. And they also estimated that the transition costs would be 12 to 17 million, one-time costs. Uh, grossly underestimated, did not include the $7 million that they're renovating City Hall for well, uh, eight, eight even, more council members. Yeah, my understanding I mean, is they like can't a, even stay at City Hall. That's like, a, yeah, the, the meeting they, they had yesterday was uh, down on 4th Ave. So they're right. spending almost a million per new council member right. to renovate the City Charter. I also yeah, said that's just for the building. Th- they omitted the costs of... Um, you know, the small donors program. Of course they do. Nobody knows what the software costs are going to be. Yeah, I don't we know. Still the, don't know. I don't, don't know, know if the county is going to charge the city back for those or not. No, oh, I'm sure but, they won't. But in any case, they estimated that the five year cost, excuse me, cost over three years would be $43 million for both severance and, um, and one-time transition, or not severance. I was like, <laughs> no, wait a minute, say, they're getting severance? They, they, they asked, no, we'll, we'll <laughs> get to severance. They get severance. We'll get to severance, <laughs> sorry. That was a slip of the tongue, <laughs> but as, as you'll find out for good reason. So anyway, they estimated $43 million for three years of transition costs and operating costs. But they never said $43 million. They said 
0.9 to 5 over three years and this to that over three years. And they couched it, that's only 0.6 to 1.3 or something like that percent of the city's discretionary budget. Like, hey, folks, no big deal. They didn't want to say 40 million bucks. Of course they um, didn't. Yeah, now my, we in know, my opinion, that now, was intentional. Now we know it's well above that. The 5.9 is now at least $13 million per year for the new council and staff. Um, do, do, we, do you have any idea? And it wouldn't surprise me. There's so much freaking money sloshing around this city and county. Do we have enough money sloshing around it? I, I know we reduced the donor matching thing, but to pay for all this? Do we really have all that, or what are they going to do, raise some taxes? Well, well I can tell you what they're not going to do. They are The city council, the mayor and the council, is so focused on stuffing highly compensated bureaucrats into city hall instead of hiring more police officers, yeah. instead of hiring Amen. more firefighters, instead of Amen. fully funding the PSR program, which a number of people support. And, and I'll give you a good example. Uh Michael Jordan, who's Ted Wheeler's chief administrative officer, has been put in charge of a transition team. And the council decided not to have, there's a citizens committee called the Government Transition Advisory Committee. They decided, that is the mayor and council, that the people's committee should have no real input on the administrative structure because the administrative structure was not part of the charter. By the same token, they think they and the transition team, government employees in City Hall, uh, should, without any citizen oversight, be recommending the structure, even though that wasn't in the charter either. So to make a long story short, and we'll get to uh, some very interesting points, they recommended that there be a city administrator, which was in the charter, an assistant city administrator, which to me makes sense because the administrator probably needs day-to-day assistance, uh, will be absent at times, and, and so on. However, they are also recommending six deputy administrators at a cost of as much as $300,000 each. And that's just salary. So if you add 50% in for benefits, uh, you can get you know, 450000 per person to the taxpayers every year. Um, and then new offices, and a centralized uh, or a new office of equity, a new office of a com- new office of equity. Yeah, they're not. They're not, as far as I know, taking the equity officers from the different bureaus and centralizing them. Those people are at all no remaining. Cost. Uh, as far as I know, it's a new layer of bureaucracy. A new layer of bureaucracy. Oh yeah, they're as I said, they're stuffing a new equity layer at, of bureaucracy. As we sit here, they are literally stuffing City Hall with a bunch of new employees who will have nothing to do with serving, in my opinion, the public nor uh, constituents of the incoming council and mayor. So they recently decided, the transition team, to recommend to the council that Council gets to just... Who's ramrodding all this through? It's... uh, there's no one. There's Michael Jordan, who's the they chief administrative officer, and the mayor. Well, they go to the council. The they go to the council with a recommendation. 
So the council's just rubber stamping all this garbage. Uh, so far, the council unanimously. The the well. Please tell me uh, Renee's voting uh, against uh, something. Uh, here. No, well, I'll tell you what Renee did or didn't vote for, as well as other council members. In November, November first of 2023, I attended a meeting because the administrative structure was being presented to them. And my objections were, it should be left to the new council. Why are you guys coming up with a structure for the new government, especially when we have a lot of other problems? Right. And that it was going to be costly. Um, they were also uh, minimizing at that time council staff. And we'll talk about that. At that point, they were recommending two staffers per council. And I certainly agree that council members don't need the six or eight or nine they have today because they're not going to be running departments. Um, so, uh, so aside from recommending to them that they leave this to the new council, it's fine to make a recommendation. Hey, new council, here's what how we think you should structure the government when you take office. They decided to start now. So as early as July 1st, they're going to hire these six new deputies. And uh, yesterday at the council meeting, they heard a proposal from their HR, uh, which means it came from the mayor and the transition team, to give these temporary employees who will be hired for no more than a year six months of severance pay, meaning let's say they're hired on July 1st, we have an election in November, new mayor takes office on January 1, the new mayor decides, I don't want these people. They're not, you know, they may be fine people, but they're not my team. I want to. So they're not definitely temporary. The idea is <laughs> they could be temporary. And it, if they are, they get severance. It, it, it's Well, what happened yesterday, the situation was even worse than I thought and worse Jeez. than what I think the council thought. So they will say these people should get six months of severance, $209,000 each, by the way, if even though they know they're taking... The severance even is 209000 or that's the salary? That's the, sever, that's the severance pay. Six months of salary and benefits, according to their own staff. $209,000? That's six months of severance? Yeah. In fact, I was going to ask you if you would endorse me in case I apply for one of those jobs or something. But I mean, it, we it, should it, all be applying for those it, jobs. It's absurd. So, in essence, they're hiring temporary people, and they're saying, well, some people might not leave their jobs in City Hall and take these. Uh, so rather than telling some people, we'll keep your job open for a few months if you want to be a deputy. That seems like a no-brainer to it, me. It seems like a total no-brainer. As I told the council, I've done that in the past. Right, um, leave it open. So what they told in response to a, a question from Commissioner Gonzalez, what they were told yesterday even if they fulfill their one-year temporary employment contract, and at that time they're told we're hiring somebody else, they would still get six-month severance or $209,000 under this proposal. So let's get back to the structure for a minute. In November, they approved a structure. Then they had a meeting subsequent to that on the salaries. And 
I was not at that meeting, but accounts that I read of that meeting said that people like Dan Ryan and Rene Gonzalez raised questions. This seems to be above market value for these positions. And uh, the answer was yes. It was like 17 or Well, it's more than Renee and Dan are getting well, paid. It, well, <laughs> let me just say, what? Uh, my understanding is only Renee Gonzalez and Dan Ryan voted against the salaries for these positions. Yeah, yeah it's um, more than any of those the ho- people hopefully, sitting there paid. Hopefully they'll also vote against what I think is a, a slap in the face to the taxpayers of Portland, a lush, lavish severance package for temporary employees it basically says hey public we're going to give our overcompensated temporary new city hall bureaucrats a cushy safety net but nobody else gets that firefighters don't get any severance police officers don't get any severance yeah they have to sue why are why are these why are these yet to be hired, but temporary people getting such a huge package. The argument that I've heard from somebody moderate and knowledgeable is the only way somebody's going to take a job that is probably temporary is if they get that. And I guess my guess is they didn't quite understand the numbers. From what I've just heard from you... I that that seems extreme. Yeah. I think I mean, we could that, find other people to take that, those that's jobs. That's the rationale that is being used as part of the recommendation. We'll have a hard time attracting people. Well, I don't think somebody, an executive from Nike or Intel or name your company, is going to leave a similarly compensated job no. for a one-year job at City Hall. I think what's going to happen is... People already people employed already in there, including exactly right. po- including potentially some members of the transition team yep. itself, will get ensconced in these positions and get a huge severance package. And then they'll go right back to their previous position. Or, or, or another job in they'll the city. They'll float around back to the city. Right, yeah. And just keep taking money from right. the taxpayers right. to do it. So anyway... Um, I think you're exactly right. I, I want to connect or do what I call connecting a few budget buttons because they're hiring all these people. As you recently saw, the fire department has an $11 million budget shortfall so far. Commissioner Gonzalez recommended uh, a cut to PSR, the street response program, of, of $3 million. The advocates for the program disagree with that vehemently. Carmen Rubio thereupon said, "Hey, right. I can I can get you interest money from the Portland Clean Energy Fund, not from the principal, but from the Clean Energy Fund to cover that." Whereupon the response from Commissioner Gonzalez apparently was, "We'll take all the interest, then we can make the fire department whole." That to me makes sense. If there's excess me money, too. if there's excess money in one place, use it for well, and if you're use it for start, first responders, right? And if you're going to start doling out money from the clean energy fund for things other than its purported use, might as well use it for things like first responders. Right. So anyway, yesterday I said, you know, you guys are planning to spend 2.54 million on these new bureaucrats for a year plus now more severance which I didn't know was in the mix there's accounts that the PSR is 3 million short you're spending 3 million on positions that 
I don't think the public wants, and you're not spending money where the, I, I think the public does want spending, and that, that's public safety. So the other thing they're doing, and, and I'm trying to cut the, to the chase here a little bit, originally they, meaning the administrative team, recommended new council members only have two staffers, and they were planning to have two offices, an office at City Hall or some city building, and then another office in the district. Um, two accounts emerged in the media last week. One is that the city is still looking for two offices for each council member. They were having some problems in East Portland due to security and fiber and some technical issues, I guess. Another account said, now you're only getting one staffer. Each council member will have only one staffer. Uh, So as I said uh, to the council, why would you have two offices and you're only having one staffer? You essentially could have an empty office, right? You can't be in two places at the same time. The other thing, and um, you know, part of my background is I worked for an Alaska U.S. senator for six years in Alaska as a state staffer. And aside from dealing with some regional issues, um, my duties involved a lot of constituent work. If people had certain issues with the federal government, a given agency, it could be the IRS, it could be Social Security or, or any department, uh, I was there, contacted, and, and worked on their issue and generally was able to resolve their issue. I told the council back in November because the council was told by this administrative transition team that they looked at peer cities for administrative structure and council staff. Well, they may have looked at it for their end of the government spectrum, but if you look at who they claim to have looked at in Seattle, San Diego, Sacramento, council members have more staff than what's being recommended. And the reason is you can't have one person answer the phone, answer constituents, set up meetings, attend meetings, attend meetings, staff or alone if the city council member is at another meeting and not available. So essentially, they are doing the voters who I think were told by the Charter Commission that the council would be legislative in nature and would really do a bang-up job responding to constituents. They are effectively, and I think consciously, kneecapping the future mayor and council by a, a, a tiny staff while the new administrator will have a huge, very expensive staff. So there's competing interests at work here. There's the new, of course, there's the charter commissioners. They're their own thing, some of whom are running for city council. There's the future city council who, you know, we don't know. You're running for this. We don't know who's going to be on that. But their considerations need to be taken into account, whomever they may be. And then, of course, as you said, we've got this bizarre economy of administrative bloat going on behind the scenes. Correct. That most people don't know about. Right. And I think if people were, I didn't know all this detail. I think if you ask people, uh, do you favor, if, if the city has available funds, do you favor going to 
bureaucratic bloat, or you could say hire new expensive administrators at City Hall, um, or going to public safety. I mean, our police force is relatively understaffed to relatively. compared to to peer cities. Well, we're the lowest it, in the country. And additionally, in the city budget, they set what's called the authorized number of officers. And then there's the the actual sworn officers, meaning let's say they the budget allows for 880 officers. Well, maybe there's only 700 who are actually hired. The gap not only has the number of officers who are authorized significantly decreased in recent years, um, but the gap between the authorized and actual officers is is the largest as well. I mean, yeah, well, uh, we're trying to get these people through DPSST through training, and our training is frankly incredible, and it's very very long, and so there's this backlog. You know, Aaron Schmaltz talked about it when he, I think he came on here yeah. when the, the first time because it was DPSST. The training center was shut down for at least a year. I think it was two due to ostensibly due to COVID. Um, and and then we and then we couldn't get these people through the pipeline. And then of course we have all these issues. Even though we are, I think, paying them pretty well, we have all these issues of, of failure to attract these people. Because why right. would you want to work here? Right. And and remember, you have the city ignoring that. You know, yes. they, I think some of the council members are concerned about it. But as a body, that's not being addressed. But they're very concerned about attracting temporary 300,000 a year administrators. And that's why they say they're offering this huge severance package. So why are they concerned about only city hall employees, but less concerned about others? The fire bureau also had a study done in 2022. It recommended six new stations due to population growth and the where people live, the demographics. So their goal is to have a four-minute response time. And they don't have that now in, right. in every area of the city. I, I certainly support that. And I'll, I'll give you an example from my background. When I was mayor of the city of Ketchikan, during budget time, the fire chief came in with his budget and, among other things, recommended some additional firefighter EMT positions at... Um, a satellite station. We had a downtown station and then one in what we called the west end of the city. And his goal was to have you know, 24-7 good response time in the whole community. Well, the council sort of balked. So I lived relatively near the main fire station. So I said, Chief, what's the response time to my house? He said, two minutes. And if we approve your... Uh, request, what will be the response time to people in the neighborhoods near the other station? Two minutes. So I said to the council, you know, I think you ought to make sure everybody in town has the same response time as the mayor does. And they ended up agreeing with it and, you know, funding the new positions yeah. and, and moving on. That's an embarrassing so, disparity. So that's what has to happen here. If there's extra money, you know, we have to... You know, if you look at my website, bobforportland.com, 
My first priority is making sure we have sensible spending and tax policies, not what we have today, where money is literally thrown out the windows of City Hall. And then if we can get our spending in control, then we need to focus our spending on what our priorities are. And those include, first, public safety. We need to increase our police officer staff. We need to uh, try to meet the goals of the study that was done for the fire department so everybody in town uh, can have a, a good response time. And, you know, we got to remember that the bulk of fire calls now are not fires. They're medical in nature. And it's very clear from all the data Minutes save lives. Yes, that's right. And that should be the goal. of, And that's where our money should be focused. Um, the city, uh, you know, and we can talk about why I'm running at some point. In fact, I'll, I'll talk about it now, I guess, because it leads into the next uh, subject I wanted to bring up. You know, I'm running because it's clear 2024 is a crossroads election for Portland. Every seat is up. If voters want to move us in a different direction than where the city has been, this is the voters' chance to do that. I believe Portland needs a course correction. And as I said, that starts with uh, our spending and tax policies, and then we focus on addressing issues that are of importance to the public. And, you know, I have years of experience, first as a school superintendent, and then later as a city council member and as a mayor of a city. I understand government, I understand budgets, and I'm, I understand how to make hard decisions uh, when you're dealing with your fiscal realities. So we certainly need to have some fiscal responsibility and, and accountability in Portland. How do we? How do I'll, we do I'll give you an example. Let me get into another issue. So, you know, people are very concerned about homeless and yeah, I think and, it's and one what issue. we do. Well, it's clear, and I'll get into some data in a second. That again, the cities, then the counties' policies have failed, and while there's those who say, "Let's just keep doing what we're doing," there's others like me, who think we need to have a course correction. The city's website says that since 2015, the city alone has spent $1.7 billion on billion with a B. B- billion with a B addressing homelessness and affordable housing-related issues. In that time, according to the city website, the number of homeless has gone from 1887 or something to over 6,000. So clearly the data shows that just throwing money and using the same approach for each homeless person, regardless of the reasons as to why they might be homeless, some of it may be economic, but clearly some of it is drug addiction and or mental illness. And it seems that there have to be different approaches. And uh, so, again, on my website, I talk, give two examples. One is the city of Houston, Texas, requires coordination. They have an office of coordinated access or something for homeless. So they make sure that the myriad of nonprofits which are funded are not duplicating services. And 
the data shows that that has worked to effectively reduce the number of homeless people. What do they do exactly? They keep track of what the nonprofits are giving money to are actually doing? I, I, I don't know precisely what they're doing. That's one way But to they, do re, they have an office that requires, that's in charge of coordinating, not, not just giving money out, but right. to, to look at what service are you, they want to make sure they, they're not funding multiple nonprofits to do exactly the same thing. And, and Bob, my understanding is we don't have anything close to that. We, we don't even have good data. No, we don't, you know, no, we don't collect it. Right. Yeah, we don't, we don't. And even it. if we did, we wouldn't know if it was good. Right. So, and, and then there's programs, there's a program called Built for Zero. Right, Sharon Myron talks about that all the time. Right. Well, no, so it's, a, it's a data-driven model that has been shown to work elsewhere. And um, we need to look at some proven methods of addressing issues, not just creating something just for Portland. You have to look, well, what's other cities have homeless issues. Other cities have public safety issues. What are they doing that works? And, you know, people here go to Portugal. They don't go to Houston to look at right. problems. Well, and as Aaron Schmelz explained, <laughs> Portugal doesn't even make sense to go to right. because they don't have guns or fentanyl. So right. it's a non-starter. Right. Like so, the minute I heard that, I'm like, I don't need to hear anything else. I don't, I don't really care what Portugal's doing. Right. So, <laughs> so anyway, that, that's where I'm coming from. There's, you know, I've done that in the past when I was involved in schools and then city government in Alaska. What are some other cities doing that work to address a problem that we have? And similar, with right. a similar issue. And in yeah. what you, you look at comparability and everything that you're saying makes total sense. So... So, Bob, what are your, how do you propose that we work with the county in the city of Portland? Because I think the big sticking point here, in my opinion, is just that we've got this county chair, Jessica Vega Peterson, who's the chair of Multnomah County. And as I learned from Sharon Myron, I don't know, when this podcast first started, when she first came in here, and I didn't know this before she explained it to me because I was relatively very uninformed, that the county chair is running things, literally everything in Multnomah County. The other, the commissioners just vote on stuff, but she, she runs everything. She sets the agenda. She decides what to vote on, what not to vote on. In fact, there are plenty of programs that come out later that it turns out she knew about, like the foil and straws program that were handed out to drug addicts, including like a boofing kit to put drugs up your bottom that the other commissioners didn't know about. And she knew about it back in May, you know, and Sharon Myron scolded her on the record about it. Um, Bob, Jessica Vega Peterson is going to be chair of Multnomah County for I think a couple more years and I I just people ask all the time about a recall I have looked into it I just don't see the money or the impetus to get that done so assuming that she is in charge of Multnomah County for the next few years what would your recommendation be for the city um, in regard to things like homelessness because of course the county is quote-unquote in charge of homelessness and I really appreciated that Mingus Maps voted against the blank check uh, for the joint, what's called the joint office, which is not joint at all. It's literally just a blank check the city gives the county to to fritter away on their, these programs that so we don't even know what, what they are, what the metrics are. Right. Well, let me back up on that a little bit. I'm not familiar with the charter for the county. 
and what it specifies for the chair and what it doesn't. It may be very specific to say the chair is also essentially the CEO, or maybe that's something that's developed over time. But I do believe that the county... Well, I think if the, cha- that, I, I think if the charter gave Sharon Myron a single, or Julie Rim Edwards, frankly, a single piece of wiggle room, they'd be wiggling. Right. So um, I, be- yes, I believe point. the charter because I looked at this once and, you know, I could be wrong, but they operate like most governments, uh, uh, municipal governments under Robert's rules. So three, in this case, charter or commission members could overrule what the chair is doing potentially. Um, but in, but in any case, more significantly, I believe that four seats are up this year for county commission, one created by a vacancy, and um, I only know uh, of three: Vin, okay. the one Vince is running for, the one Vadim Mazursky is running for, and the one Jesse Burke's running for. Okay, so oh, the other one might be uh, Julia. Julia Brim Edwards has to run again. Right. So, so there's four four re-elected. seats up, and, and I imagine she'll That's run right. again. That's four. So Vadim is yeah. Vadim Mazursky's running, Jesse Burke's running, and I think it's important to elect. People like them. And Vince Dixon is my understanding. Who will uh, look at, number one, how can the county do better? And and we'll talk about county spending, but also how can we work better with the city? And likewise, I think we need to make sure we elect council members who will say it's important to our constituents to work with the county and have a good relationship and try to solve problems together. And again, my Alaska experience, we had where I live, the city and what's called a borough. It's like a county, but they're not contiguous in Alaska. We had joint meetings between the elected bodies periodically, like at least once a year. Plus there was a standing committee of the two mayors, the two managers, and one or two council members, assembly members who met every month or two to talk about issues and to see if there was a way the city and the borough could work together. I would suggest that uh, we do that with the county, that there'd be some joint meetings periodically, and certainly uh, I think we need more... accountability. We need more than just the mayor and the county chair to meet. Uh, according to news reports, uh, the current city mayor, uh, and I don't know the whole history, but let's say he and the former county chair did not have a great relationship, a great working relationship. So instead of limiting that to a couple people, I would broaden that, that there'd be a standing committee of some city folks and county folks that meet periodically to talk about issues that um, that they should be talking about. And certainly homelessness is, is well, one of Well, that's what the county's allegedly in charge of. Not doing super right, well with it. Right. And, and I think what happens sometimes is the city gets blamed for things that are a, a county issue. Well, the, I, I, you know, there's plenty of blame to go around at the city. Um, I, for one thing, I don't think the money should be handed over. I think the, we, we don't need to give them that money. There is no contract 
that says that we have to give them that money. Right. And it's my understanding that Mayor Wheeler... Mingus was right about that. Mayor Wheeler was recently proposing a five-year extension of an agreement with the county. And again, this is just before a new mayor and council oh are coming in. Oh, my God. And so he's hamstringing somebody well, from... Just like with the administrative structure, they're saddling the new mayor and yes. council... Knowing that a new group of people are coming, you know, one way or the other, at least two of the three uh, uh, council members who are running for mayor won't be there in, in January because obviously only one of them will be elected mayor. So there's a, a new group of elected officials who ought to have the flexibility to do what they think is best after a good public process instead of the current mayor and council trying to do it for them. And I said like that to them yesterday. I said, this is the job of the new council to decide the administrative structure, not you. Uh, they will go ahead and do that. But let's talk about the county for a minute because... Please. Um, you know, I, I think one of the issues that a lot of people are concerned about, including me, and it's on my website, bobforportland.com, is, as I said, taxation. And yes. outside of New York City, we have the, uh, the highest tax rate in Portland. Uh, it is applied at the first when somebody makes $125,000 or more in New York, it's applied, I'm told, when somebody makes $25 million. Million. That's right. So uh, there was recently an article about, well, there's been several articles about the preschool for all tax. Uh, earlier article said, A, the revenues are greater than anticipated, and B, expenditures are less. So there was an article in Willamette Week last week that county economists did a presentation to the county commission that was attempting to justify what is in the preschool for all ordinance. And that's in 2026, there will be a 0.8% increase. And their graph had a line of revenues and a line for expenditures. And at some point, the expenditure line crossed above. Well, based on my many years of budget experience, both as a school superintendent and then later as a council member and mayor for 18 years, I suspected that if they weren't spending all their money, per the first article I referenced, there probably was a sizable fund balance. And I suspected that the fund balance was not included on the graph that was presented to the county commission to justify a tax increase. So I asked the county about that, and I got a very quick response, which I'm thankful for, and a very straightforward one. They said at the end of the first year, the fund balance was $169,115,000. At the end of 2023 fiscal year, it had grown to 344 million, it had doubled. They anticipated, and I suspect it's conservative, that they will have 409 million in their fund balance at the end of fiscal year 2024, the year that we're in now. So we have almost half a billion in preschool fund balance reserves 
And they're talking about a tax increase that will, again, if that went into effect, that would give us the highest tax rate. And, and Bob, I'm not saying it should be dispersed because, frankly, aside from Kairos Charter School, who my friend Marsha Williams runs, that I think is great. Aside from that, I don't know of a single place or a single person getting these preschool dollars. I, it's certainly not for all. It, Most it, people I know are not getting free preschool, Bob. Right. It, it's not for all. Where and is this, why, why is the, this money sitting there? One of the things that the county should have considered is, should we use this money for vouchers? If somebody right. has a child at a preschool, why go through this bureaucratic process Make it like to a certify a preschool? Yes. Um, and and say, hey, here's some money to help support you taking your child to a preschool. Make it like a Pell Grant. Uh, right. So but you know the issue, Bob, is that we have statewide preschool program. You know that, right? Um, yeah. Preschool Promise. Yeah. We also have Head Start federal program, very, very well funded. Yeah. We've got that. And now we've got this county thing. We've got three layers of preschool in Oregon. And Preschool Promise had its own issues with money. Way too much of it. None of this makes any sense to me. Uh, right. I, I still can't believe that thing passed. I, I'm I am just infuriated with people who voted for that. I think they really thought. I think they really thought. Hey, I've I've got a preschooler. I I do think it should be paid for. I think it should be just like kindergarten and rolled into it. And they didn't read the ballot measure, which of course does not roll preschool into kindergarten. Right. And, you know, I think people who voted for it might have said, oh, preschool, we think preschool for all is a great idea. And then, of course, there were those who viewed it as let's tax the rich yes. some more. Because, because as it I is said, a rich tax. this applies to single incomes of 125000 and over or joint incomes of two hundred or two fifty. <coughs> the problem with that, though, is with inflation – the preschool tax doesn't have built-in inflation, meaning so instead of 125000 maybe three years later, especially after 9% and then 3% inflation, maybe it applies to 135000 140000 So as people make more, more and more people are going to be subject to the tax. At some point, 125000 which is a lot of money, will include more and more people uh, in Portland, in, in, in Multnomah County. Um, you know, Bob, the last time I calculated this, and I'll link to it, my math, so people can look at it, but the last time I calculated this, which was July of 2023, in Multnomah County, we were spending... About $270,000 per kid for 700 kids to go to preschool. That's absurd. Yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely <laughs> absurd. And the, the other thing that I think is crazy is that there's actually a study. There was a new study put out, and man, it was difficult for people to wrap their minds around it. it in fact, NPR reported about it. And I also, I'm, I'm going to link to this too, but you could tell as you're reading that NPR article about how much they're struggling with the fact that they're, they're saying this out loud and they don't want to say it out loud, which is a state, and now I'm quoting from the study, a statewide public pre-K program taught by licensed teachers housed in public schools had a measurable and statistically significant negative effect on children in this study. 
They go on, we might actually get better results from letting little children play. So the takeaway was, it was this well-funded study out of Tennessee. It lasted more than a decade. It, NPR themselves said it's the closest thing you can get. I'm just, I'm reading from it. Closest thing you can get in the real world to a randomized control trial. The gold standard in showing causality in science. And yet, what we learned is, despite all of our knee-jerk inclinations, preschool doesn't really help kids. It's not really helping anybody. So all this money that we're throwing into these programs statewide, you know, federal head start, I don't know, we can leave that alone for a minute. But the statewide preschool promising which has been plagued by its own issues and this Multnomah County quote unquote preschool for all, which as we know is basically Catlin Gable with a gold crown based on uh, what they're spending on these people as my girlfriend would say, this is wild. And I, I don't know what we would have to do to roll it back. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if we ever could. Yeah. It's, there it is, it, just it, collecting money, just like that it's, it's boondoggle a, clean energy fund. It's amazing to me because I know preschool is preschool, and that's county. I'm the former K-12 school superintendent. So over there you have Portland Public Schools that had a strike for whatever reasons. And I know for there's entire di- month. I know there's different opinions. But definitely frustration, definitely. at least, over a much smaller amount of money. So you have half, That's a, right. half a billion, almost 400 million, sitting in county coffers for preschool. Fury. And the school district, if they had had a fraction of that, could have avoided a strike and improved uh, education, hopefully, to kids who attend public school in Portland. So it's just... An anomaly. It, it's like, uh, you know, the Oregonian, and I have this on my website, said our elected people need to re-strategize how we spend money. Yeah. Because you have some basic services, and again, I reference public safety, underfunded, and then because of taxes like this, generating way more than projected. Uh, you have it, PCEF, you know, possibly great program addressing energy issues it's generating way more than expected and somebody's paying the bill and it may not be some people in portland but if it's a business tax ultimately people are paying that through what they buy um, oh yeah that's getting you know, passed it's, on it's you not, look at your receipt yeah. it, it'll say it, it'll say tax on it and you go well what tax is this well of course it gets passed on to you of course it does. Yeah, no, it gets passed on to right. you. So it's, there's nothing free, and that's why when We're all paying for that. some taxes say, oh, somebody else is paying, ultimately it's not just somebody else. Bob, I want to get back to this. I, I just want to point this out. And again, it's in this thread that I'm going to put in the show notes. But this is, it just, it makes me so angry. This state, this was July of 2023, this was reported on, and this state-funded Preschool promise, unsurprisingly to me, has been spectacularly mismanaged. Oregon spent $26 million from 2020 to 2022 on preschool slots that were never filled. So this is going on at every level in Oregon. Yeah, yeah. And, pro- and that's why people are leaving. And probably no coordination. Right. 
Oh, probably. <laughs> I think. I mean, yeah. And, and it's, like, it's like the city. It's like week after week, no coordination. Um, you know, or during the last storm when there was a favorable right. weather report, right. the county actually closed the warming and sh- shelters and shelters and put people on the icy streets and well, gave them tents. Well, later that week, the county reported record ER visits from people who slipped who who slipped on the ice and fell people that they shoved not necessarily all of them but certainly a good number of people that they shoved out on the streets from and it's like how are decisions being made why isn't there common sense applied Clearly, in that case, if people said the conditions outside are terrible, we have the flexibility not to close the shelters. We're absolutely not going to close the shelters. Um, and then the issue of coordination between the city and county. Needs you know, to- Bob, one of my favorite examples is from John DiLorenzo, who the, was the lawyer on the Americans with Disabilities Act case, which sued the city on behalf of disabled people. And as he points out, the county is handing out tents on our dime, and then we pay the city to throw the tents away during the sweeps. Right. Well, now, that's a great example right. of the left hand not talking to the right well, hand. Well, and at some point, and we talked about data earlier, I don't think the county knows who it's giving tents to. They probably don't. They keep, don't. They gave out... So the, there, there's about, about 6,000 homeless people, and granted, over time, there's turnover. They gave, there was a report about a year ago, they gave out 60,000 tents in a three-year period. How do you give out 60,000 tents? Obviously, multiple tents to somebody. Well, yeah, I mean, yes. Tiana so, Tozer talked about this and said that she looked at, she was one of the plaintiffs in this ADA lawsuit, and she had, was privy to the documents. And when she came on this podcast, she talked about how she she was used to looking at governmental, she, she would be in foreign wars looking at governmental documents about expenditures. And so she's familiar with this. She's mm-hmm. looking at these well-known accounting expenditures, and to her... I guess not surprise, but consternation, she sees that, yes, Bob, they're not keeping track of who they're giving these to. You walk up and ask right. for tent and they're handing it out like candy. Right. So, that you know, that's certainly one of the issues. I certainly, certainly is. I certainly don't have a problem with the county handing out tents, keep track of who's you know, getting them. I do. I, that, I do. And here's right. why. Okay. Here's why. Because as Renee Gonzalez has pointed out and as all of the firefighters and Chief Boone who's chief of the fire department appointed out, here's what happens in these tents. These people are burning to death. That's what happens. We cannot be handing out tents. Those are incendiary devices. And Nick Ashragi, who is at Emanuel, which is our only trauma hospital in the state of Oregon that can deal with those kind of burns, his trauma unit is filled with people, homeless people who've been burned. So the, the fire department is begging the county, the city, that's why Renee Gonzalez told PSR Portland Street Response to stop handing out tents. these tents. Okay. Because it is, it's killing homeless people. And they're being burned so badly that they end up at these trauma hospitals, of which we only have one. Now, Bob, if you and I get burned really, really badly, there's not going to be a spot for us in Nikoshragi's burn unit. We're going to have to be life flighted or an, another homeless person at our expense is going to be life flighted to Salt Lake City, Sacramento, Harborview in Seattle. We're doing this all the time. 
because these people are burning in tents. And the other thing that's going on is, as Dr. Shragi explained, is that, and, and this is part of why Renee Gonzalez stopped, told Portland Street Response to stop handing out these tents. Dr. Shragi was begging him, saying these people are being burned in tents and this has absolutely got to stop. They've got to start be getting into shelters and we need to provide incentives for them to do that. But the issue is really the flammability of these tents. And what's going on is we don't have good conservatorships for these people. We don't have a system in place like Florida has the Marchman Act where we can say danger to self and others. Now, as you and I know, Bob, that bar is pretty darn high, um, but next to nothing. I mean, you, you can't get a conservatorship in this state to save your life. And so Dr. Shroggy is saying he's telling people things like, I need to amputate your left leg. And they say, no. And they leave. And so they're walking around with a dead limb on the streets of Portland. This is de rigueur. It, Sharon okay. Myron can attest to this, too. Okay. She does street well, medicine. Well, I, I, I stand corrected. I guess where I was heading, at, uh, maybe I... It's uh, just wild. Is, uh, I don't have a problem with people being provided shelter. And clearly... And they very little, be. right? Clearly, very while some progress has happened, there's. Uh, Do you know we spend one a, billion with a B a year on medical treatment of homeless people due to excruciatingly painful burns from ten fires? Uh, I mean, that's that's and, Oregon and Burn Center's Oregon, own. Okay, that's Oregon Burn right. Center's house houseless right. admissions right. numbers. Right. Yeah. Well, and then you know, getting back to ambulance calls. Oh, geez. You, you well, know, yeah. If you follow, you know, we can talk about Measure One Ten and drugs, but if you talk about ambulance overload. Uh, there's so many overdoses and so many overdoses taking up ambulance space that if you or I need I an ambulance, we might not get one in time to save our lives. Well, we probably won't. Uh, and uh, Sharon Myron says, assume that you won't. And in fact, what I've been told is if you've got, if, and I tell my kids this, if you think there's something wrong with mommy and I have a heart attack or something, don't call an ambulance. Call the neighbor because I'm going to get there faster. Good point. How scary is that? That that is scary. And you know, maybe Measure One Ten funds should buy a fleet of ambulances. I mean, <laughs> but yeah, don't get me started on yeah, Measure One Ten, Bob. That's yeah. a whole other. We've got shows on that, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I know you do. And, and, and just for the record, I certainly favor amending that. Uh, it's clear that uh, that what has happened last couple of years has uh, it's tragic it's just tragic. Is, is tragic and it's very heartrending for me if i'm walking around oh, yeah. in my neighborhood or elsewhere with you know, i have a four-year-old granddaughter here and we're walking by people with needles yeah. or clouds of fentanyl smoke and face, having yeah. to cross the street you know it's just not right or walk in it, the street because right. you can't use the sidewalk right. there's tents on the sidewalk right. so so, Bob, anything else we need to know from you or anything else that you think we need to know about your candidacy? Um, you know, I think I have discussed uh, my perspectives on the charter and my perspectives on why I think Portland needs a course correction. Um, I would urge, again, that if people want to look at what my positions are, they can go to uh, .com. I My positions... Uh, are pretty well laid out. The issues I care about are addressed. And you know, if people feel that um, 
that they agree largely with where I'm coming from. I certainly would be honored to have somebody's vote if they live in District 4, and if they do or not, be honored if they'd consider a donation. Right, because you can donate to these candidates if you live within the city of Portland and they qualify for these small donor matching funds. You can donate to these candidates regardless of the district that you're in. If you want to see a normal city council, I think people should be invested in this. And if you think Bob Weinstein sounds like somebody common sense that you want to support, I think even if you're not in his district, it makes sense to shoot him money for a coffee or something and throw that in the small donor pot because you we are all have a vested interest in seeing a good reasonable common sense city council to try to rectify some of these issues that bob and i talked about which are just legion i mean i i don't even i, I don't envy people like you bob and i really appreciate you running because these kinds of issues are they are so a lot of these issues are so entrenched I don't know how you roll a lot of it back, but I'm excited about your ideas. And frankly, I'm just glad you're pointing a lot of this stuff out because a lot of people don't want to talk about it. Well, thank you. And I will say that regardless of whether or not I'm elected, I hope that uh, your listeners uh, and their friends and families learn about who is running and do their best to make sure that there's seven or maybe even nine of the 12 council members who approach things uh, to try to That's solve right. problems, work together, and not from some ideological point of view. We need to really have our problems addressed, and there's uh, it, re- it will require a lot of cooperation and a lot of common sense. Thank you, Bob Weinstein. District 4, Portland City Council, and you can find him at bobforportland.com if you want to learn more about him. And Bob, if people want to get a hold of you, is there a form that they fill out? Do you have an email address? Uh, The best email for for this is info at bobforportland.com. If they go to my website, there's a a contact, and and I get those emails directly. And and they're organized. They don't go in my personal email where I might get four or 500 emails a day. It's strictly uh, campaign-related. Fantastic. So if you have any questions for Bob, please feel free to contact him. Bob, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much, Kristen. It's, it's been great.